I love the title of this series, Our Beautiful, Messy Life, because our church is beautiful, but it's messy. And our families are beautiful, but they're messy. And our marriages are beautiful, but they are extremely messy. And in a church this size, you know that you're going to run into all kinds of different people. We have a lot of married people. We have a lot of single people. And we have a lot of people in marriages that are messy. And so Paul writes this text to say, there's a number of relational roles that you're going to find yourself in. And if you develop the attitude that says, I'm not enjoying it, therefore I'm going to reject it. Not only will you lose blessing personally, you're going to lose intimacy with God and you're going to lose the ability to glorify God. You see, I lead our young adults, 18 to 30 year olds, and a common, common problem as they see it is that their friends are dating or their friends are getting married and I'm not getting married, so I'm single and I don't like it. I'm like, okay. And I also, being at the age that I am, I've been married now for over a decade and a number of the friends that got married in the same season of life that I did are now getting divorced. One of the men that was on the stage with me has been divorced. And so it utterly breaks my heart. But it creates this odd dynamic in the church where you have a bunch of single people that don't want to be and you have a bunch of married people that don't want to be. And then there are those that are married and they do want to be married, but they're like, this is messy and it hurts and this is nothing like what I was sold, but I bought it and it hurts. So what do I do when I'm in a relational role that I don't like or I'm in a role where I don't feel called to it or, or I want something that someone else has? Paul wants to write to discuss this problem. And what's interesting to me is that he starts with a quotation from a letter he received. So this is what I love about the church. We're all so different that in chapter 6, you've got a group of people that so were abusing the physical that they were like, I like sex, it feels good, so I'm going to do more of it. And Paul was like, no, let me bring you some guidelines. But then this quote, there was another group of people in the church that were like, well, sexual intimacy is causing so much relational destruction. Let's just say no to all of it. Let's just say no sex. Like no, no intimacy, no nothing. We're just going to be people that live together, but, but sex is causing too much damage. We're just going to reject it. Paul goes, that's wrong too. To reject the physical is to reject the spiritual. You cannot divorce the two. And so Paul wants to talk to married people and he wants to talk to single people and he, wanted, he wants to talk to what he says is everybody else. So as you are learning your role, let's begin with those that are married. Paul begins here. He goes, let me talk to married people. He goes, and, and he starts with probably the most unromantic line concerning marriage ever. He says, husbands, you need to fulfill your marital duty to your wife and likewise a wife to her husband. He doesn't say that you should come together in marriage because there's a lot of beautiful emotions and passions and it's going to be wonderful. He says, when you come together, look at your spouse and as you analyze them, you say, you're mine. I am responsible for you. I'm going to protect you. I'm going to keep you safe. All marriages begin with obligation and responsibility. Why do you need to know this? Because you and I cannot ignore what we are responsible for. We cannot ignore what we are responsible for. And you know this because every single one of the jobs that you've ever had began this way. Welcome to the company. Here's what you're responsible for. Should you do this, you have a job. If you don't do this, we fire you. You know this legally. You have moral and legal obligations. When you decide to reject these, that's when you and I get in trouble. It is the same in your marriages. You have things that you are responsible for and you need to do them. I worked for a number of summers at a, at a pool here in town, and I was responsible for chem checks. That's where you dip a little vial in the water, and you measure the chlorine and make sure the pool's safe. 
Now, I don't know about you because some of you, like you had to, you had to get the numbers and then record them in a spreadsheet. Some of you see spreadsheets and you worship. I see spreadsheets and something inside me dies a little bit. I, I hate it. And so I was like, you know what? Chem checks aren't that important. No one's going to get that sick. So I just stopped doing them. And so my boss calls me one day and he goes, Tyler, you having a good day? I was like, yep, having a great day. You like your job? Yep, love my job. Excellent. Then would you do it? He's like, I've got the chem check book in front of me. And I was like, oh, oh. He's like, yeah. Every time it's your shift, I see blanks in the numbers. Here's the thing, man. I love you, but either decide to do your job or I will find someone else to do your job. Now, can you be replaced in your marriage by a minimum wage employee? No. (laughs) We hope not. But the question still remains to you. You married? Yep, I'm married. You like your spouse? Yep, love my spouse. Okay, then would you show it? Sexual intimacy is on the list of things that we are responsible for in our marriages. And hear me, I did not say sexual activity. It is sexual intimacy that you are responsible for. That is the emotional well-being of your spouse, the communication with your spouse, dating your spouse. Yes, physical intimacy, but it's a holistic response to who your spouse is. Julie Slattery in her book, Rethinking Sexuality, which I highly recommend to you, said this. True sexual intimacy in marriage is not just about making your body available. It's about making your whole self available to your spouse. And you know this because people can go have sex with each other and not even know each other. Marriage is not, this text is not about the frequency of your sexual activity in marriage. This text is about how are we loving each other and am I willing to love you better? Now, does that lead to more sexual activity? Sometimes. But that's not the goal. If the goal is whole self being known, then here's the question. Am I sacrificing to meet your needs? Here's the question. Am I revealing all of myself or do I lob my body at you every now and again to satisfy you, but I never give you my heart? Am I known in this marriage and all the scared, dark parts of me that I'm afraid to tell anybody else? Do I tell you that is sexual intimacy. And he says, you have a duty to your spouse in that realm. To help you understand how it works, he says, let's talk about your body. Before marriage, the body you have, you had full control over it. You have full authority over it. That is a good thing. When you get married, what does he say? He says, husbands, you no longer have authority over your body. Your wife does. And ladies, You don't have authority over your body. Your husband does. Now, why did some of you, even at the mention of that bristle? Because we get scared. And the idea that someone else would have authority over me is scary because we've been hurt before. Bodily autonomy is an important thing. And and this language, guys, does not come in tyrannical dominion. I don't have authority over Audrey's body to do with whatever I want. When I have authority over something and I am guided by the Lord, here's what I do with her body. I protect it. I keep it safe. I make sure it's healthy. I make sure it has what it needs to thrive. And yes, I enjoy it. And her mine. For you to have authority over your spouse's body is not to say I get to do with it whatever I want. It is to say no matter how you behave, I'm going to take care of you. There's no coasting in the covenant. There's no coasting in your covenant. It is to say, you are mine to keep safe and keep 
healthy. But for some of you, you're like, man, Tyler, I'm with you, but my marriage is awful right now. We, we haven't even touched each other in the last couple months, let alone had sexual intimacy. So what do I do when, when I know what marriage is and I know what I should do, but we're just scared, we're splintered? Number one, do you take this text seriously? Are you willing to do what is necessary to meet the needs of your spouse, even when they're not meeting your needs? Is marriage to you a contract or is it a covenant? A contract is this. I do something for you, you do something for me. Okay, I'll build you a deck, you give me money. I don't build you a deck, you don't give me money. A covenant is, is this. I don't care what you do, I'm in. Your body is mine to keep safe. As you look at this though, you still might be saying, you know what, I, here, here's what we'll do, Tyler. I, I'm not gonna divorce my spouse, I don't hate him. But we'll just live together, we'll stay together for the kids because I don't wanna make a mess of all of this, but we're not gonna really love each other. Why don't we just do that? It's not hurting anyone. Yes, it is. Can I gently tell you why that's a very, very bad idea? Going back to last week, you cannot separate what God has brought together. And I mean the physical and the spiritual. When you and I decide to reject our spouses in intimacy, we invite in spiritual damage. When we reject them in conversation, in romance, when we reject them in all levels of holistic intimacy, we invite Satan in. What does the text say? Verse five, do not deprive each other except perhaps by mutual consent and for a time so that you may devote yourselves to prayer. Then come together again so that Satan will not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. Friends, you need to care about your marriage as much as Satan does. He's deeply threatened by what you possess. Why would he be so concerned with splitting you up? Because your and I's marriage, we were patterned after the gospel. If you read Ephesians 5, when us men don't know what to do in marriage, what do we do? What did Jesus do? When Wives, when you don't know what to do in marriage, what did the church do? There, there is a, a giving and a receiving. There's a leading and a following. There's a submission and headship. There's sacrifice on both ends. Think about this. If your marriage was patterned after the gospel, look at what Jesus did, right? All of us. Look at what he left behind, leaving heaven, leaving safety, coming to earth to be beaten, falsely accused, murdered. If Jesus had to do that to love us, then would it not make sense that in your marriage, it would require deep sacrifice, deep sacrifice to love one another. My friends, when I'm doing premarital, I don't need to tell young people about, you know, sacrifice and love because they just don't hear me. They're like, I just love love. I, I love my spouse. And I'm like, ha, you have no idea. Anyone that's been married for over a minute is like, friend, you don't know what's coming. For premarital, I shouldn't even like preach Adam and go through scripture. I should just have him sit with you. Because they're coming into marriage like, man, all my sexual needs are going to get met. We're just going to have fun all the time. And all the married couples are like, nope. That'll last maybe a week. But what happens, something happens to all of us, right? And maybe you're different. Maybe you're perfect. You probably are. But something happens in our marriages where we began with this wonderful sense of intimacy, but we didn't really understand what marriage was. 
And then this person who is our best friend hurts us. And we're like, wait a minute, this doesn't make sense. You're not supposed to hurt me. You're supposed to love me. For whatever reason, we're just blown away when our spouse makes mistakes. And then suddenly, instead of treating it like a covenant, we treat it like a contract. And we don't want to pursue because they didn't pursue. And we don't want to love because they didn't love. And so then we resign ourselves because we don't want to get hurt again. We're just like, okay, when you start making an effort, I'll make an effort. Why is that such a destructive idea? Because Jesus didn't wait for you to get your stuff together before he went to the cross. And so you cannot wait for your spouse to figure out their sin before you go love them. You're forever going to be waiting. One of you needs to decide you matter so much. I'm going to pursue regardless of how you behave. And you also need to remember the dire consequences. What does he say happens when you decide to reject intimacy? He says Satan is waiting right there. And so gentlemen, when you decide not to feed into your wife love and courage and intention, here's what you've done. You've opened the door and you've said, Satan, come on in here. Look at this. This is all of my wife's insecurities. This is every lie she's ever believed about herself. And I just want you to flame it into a reality. So Satan's just sitting there. He's like, thank you for the end to your house. Hey, like, sweetheart, come here. Your husband never listens to you. It must be because he doesn't like you. It must be because he thinks less of you. But hey, there's this guy. Come here, come here. There's this guy over here. And he'll listen to you. He's going to make you feel good. And you deserve to feel good. Your husband, bonehead. Don't worry about him. He'll find someone else. Let go of him. The lies always come when you are not the one there to present what is real and what is true. Your wife's going to have a hard time believing lies. when If Satan comes in and says, hey, he doesn't care about you. And your wife goes, actually, he told me this morning. He told me that he loves me. He gave me a hug. He gave me a kiss on the cheek and he said, I love you. I'm excited to come home. I'll see you later for dinner. It is unbelievably difficult for a woman to believe the lies of Satan when her husband spoke truth to her a minute before the lie came. And ladies, it's the same with you. When you decide to reject your husband, and I'm not just talking in sex, when you decide to say intimacy with us doesn't matter. You have rejected me, you've been mean to me, so I'm just going to distance myself from you, but here's what you've done. You have opened the door, and you've said, Satan, come on in. All the insecurities that your macho man has are just utterly destroyed because Satan is very good at what he does. And he says, hey, she hasn't given you intimacy in weeks, maybe even months. She's not impressed with you. She's not attracted to you. She's probably attracted to that other guy. So why don't you just leave her because the woman on the screen, she's never going to say no to you. No one in the history of humanity has ever woken up and just thought to themselves, I want to obliterate my marriage. I don't care about it. Like I'm just ready to go sleep with somebody else. It always begins in the line back here with a small lie that you began to believe. That they don't find me attractive. They don't find me impressive. They're not invited in by me. But someone else might appreciate me for who I am. And in our fear, that's when we go have emotional affairs. And that's when we go have physical affairs. Because we decided that early on, our spouse was not worth the work to put in intimacy. And we just said to ourselves, they were mean, so I'm going to be mean. And we acted like children. And then the divorces came. And then the broken families came. Guys, you have no idea how many young people I talk to that don't want anything to do with marriage. And when I ask why, they say, my parents. 
They're like, if that's what marriage is, I don't want anything to do with it. Your marriage does not just affect you. It affects everybody. It affects your kids and it affects your church. When we decide to give up on that, you you have to remember what's at stake. Your marriage was patterned after the gospel, which means that I see it, I feel it in my marriage, and so do you. When I look at the crowd and I see the marriages, I see the gospel, and I see the gospel, and I see the gospel. This happens practically when I decide to be a bonehead, when I decide to get overbearing, when I decide to get immature, and Audrey still invites me into relationship. That is when I become aware that there's a God who is real and never says no to me. There's a God that says, Tyler, come in. I know you messed up, but come in, come in. Let's just be together. My wife teaches me that. And when Audrey gets emotionally distant or when she gets naggy or when she does something that hurts my feelings and I still pursue, she is aware that there is a God that left heaven and left all that was comfortable to meet her needs. And she learns that from me and your spouse learns that from you. To reject your spouse in intimacy is to reject them in the spiritual and it's to reject how the gospel is seen and felt and experienced in your life. Don't do that. There's a number of other people though in the church. There's not just married people. There's, there's people in messy marriages. There's single people. And Paul talks to all of them and he says, in summary, I want you to grow where you're planted. Because a number of you find yourselves in relational roles that you don't like. You're like, I'm single and I don't want to be. I'm married and it's messy and I don't feel good so I want to leave. So let's talk to all of you. Where he begins is with those that are unmarried. Verse 8. Now to the unmarried and the widows I say this. It is good for them to stay unmarried as I do. You got to understand that word. What does good mean? Does good mean better? Like it's better to be single? No. I don't believe that for a second because Paul's the one that taught all of us about marriage. Paul is unbelievably excited about marriage. And if you back up one verse, he says, if you're married, that's a gift. But then he also says, if you're single, that's a gift. Don't reject either one. See, what he's doing is he's giving you a wonderful new category to exist in. And I'm not going to lie, the church doesn't always handle this one well. Because we love the progression of relationships, we, we love the progression of lives. We love that there's junior high and then high school and then college and then career, right? We love that. We love when people meet when they're in their early 20s and then they date and they get married. We love that. But what do you do when there's a young adult who's in their latter 20s and they're not married? Or their early 30s and they're not married? Or they're nearing 40 and they're not married? We don't know what to do with them sometimes. Because we just come up and we're like, I don't even really know what to say. Like, hey, are you dating anyone? And they're like, huh, still no. Like, thank you for that. What if we ask them, what are you excited about lately? What is God teaching you? What area of evil are you assaulting with the gifts that God has given you? I want to read to you something again that Julie Slattery wrote in her book. She says this, while God created sexual desire to awaken our longing for love, even marriage is not the ultimate fulfillment of that desire. Marriage is the shadow the foretaste, the metaphor of the true longing to be known, to be embraced, to be accepted, and to be celebrated by our creator. This means that our sexuality is infused with a significant spiritual purpose, regardless of our marital status. 
This gives great spiritual significance, not only to marriage, but also to celibacy. You see, there's a realm, a a, a capacity in the church that I think often gets overlooked because for whatever reason, we elevate marriage over singleness. And Paul says, "Uh uh-uh, marriage is beautiful, it's a gift. Singleness, beautiful, it's a gift. Look at what Paul did. He, he scoured the, the, old, or the, the New Testament world all over the Middle East and he was imprisoned and he was beaten and he preached thunderously all throughout prisons in different areas. Could he have done that? Bringing along a wife and children. We would have called him the most horrible husband and father ever for not keeping them safe. And we would have been justified. But he says, look at my life and understand, friends. All, all of us understand. When you get to heaven, you're not married. Jesus said it. He goes, when you get to heaven, we're not given in marriage, nor are we married. Now, don't despair if you're here in this life and you love your spouse and you're like, man, am I going to miss them? No. They're there forever. They are your best friend now and forever. Are you married, though, in the sense that you are now? No. Because marriage is a tool. It's a beautiful gift designed to teach you about intimacy with the Lord and a forever pursuit Okay, just like the covenant you just took, you drank that cup and you said to yourself, this represents a covenant of Jesus. He's never going to leave. It is the same in your marriages. It is the same as single people. You are in a covenant relationship with God and he's never going to leave. Singleness, my friends, is not to be rejected. It's not to be thought of as less than. Christopher West in his book, Theology of the Body, says this, Celibacy for the kingdom is not a rejection of sexuality. It is a call to embrace the ultimate meaning and purpose behind sexuality. The one flesh union is, not, it is only a foreshadowing of something infinitely more grand and glorious. Now, what's funny to me is that when I talk to young adults, they're not a fan of singleness. Like, this is not cool. I want to be dating. I want to be married. But then I talk to some of you married people and you're like, actually, singleness would be kind of nice right now. Whatever relational role you find yourself in, it is a gift to be enjoyed, whether it's permanent or temporary. And what he goes to next, he jumps back to marriage and he doesn't spend a whole lot of time here, so I won't either, but it it bears repeating. He says this, To the married, I give this command, not I, but the Lord. A wife must not separate from her husband, but if she does, she must remain unmarried or be reconciled to him. And the husband must not divorce his wife. Why would he put this back in here? Because Paul understands what he's trying to teach you is that marriage is hard. And marriage is wonderfully unique. Unlike any other relationship you will ever be in. It's meant to teach you a number of things. What you should see in this text is that it is unbelievably sacred. And you don't mess with the sacred. Because when items were sacred in the Old Testament, what I love is there was such a a wonderful simplicity, a practicality. I mean, it scares me to death, but if you touch the ark, you're dead. You go into the Holy of Holies, you're dead. And yet we look at marriage, this beautiful sacred thing, and we're like, eh, I'll break it. He goes, would you respect this? To the degree that Jesus does. what He says, not I, but the Lord. Meaning that Jesus has already preached on this before. Matthew 5. If you divorce your spouse for any other reason than sexual immorality, you are in the wrong. Matthew 19. Jesus quotes Genesis chapter 2. He says, a man's going to leave his parents. woman's going to leave her parents. They're going to get together. Don't touch them. Ever. 
And then he looks at Matthew 10 and he says, what God has joined together, let nobody separate. Now, friends, I just have to say this because there's a number of individuals in here that have been divorced. And you're kind of sinking in your chair because you're like, man, are people going to judge me? You know, is God angry with me? It's like, stop. Stop any of the shame talk. You have to understand all of the commands together if you're going to understand marriage and divorce. What he's trying to do here is not shame you if you are hurting in that way. He's simply trying to tell all of us, this is not a friendship. This is a covenant. And just like I take a cup of juice to remind myself that Jesus never quits, I need to understand that I should never quit on my spouse. Ever. He says, remember that it's sacred. And it's in that sacredness that he moves to the next idea. Because just like our church, his church, had some marriages that were really messy. And there was a group of people that were really afraid because here's what they did. They, a number of families had come together before the gospel was ever preached. And so there were individuals in the church that were married before they accepted Jesus. But then one of them came to faith. And so they were asking their leadership, hey, I'm a Jesus follower now, but my husband isn't. Should I leave him? Not because I don't like him. I love him, but, but he, he's not following the Lord anymore. So we're different. And Paul goes, sure, but no, don't leave them. Marriage is not sacred if there's two believers. Marriage is sacred because it's sacred. If you're two non-believers in marriage, congratulations, it's still sacred. And if there's one believer and one non-believer, congratulations, it's still sacred. And so Paul says, ask them a question. Do you want to stay? Will you let me love you? And if they say yes, then stay with them. They were even so afraid of this that they were wondering if their children were now illegitimate. He goes, no, they're actually holy now. Not that they're saved. So he says, you're going to sanctify your spouse. That doesn't mean you're going to save them. We already know you're only saved by grace through Jesus. What he's saying is you're made special. You're invited into a new story. It has some new rules and some new blessings. So he says, if you are married to a non-believer, stick it out if they want to stay. He does give you a really, really sad verse though. He says, if the unbeliever leaves, let it be so. This is verse 15. The brother or the sister, that means the, the Christian man or woman, is not bound in such circumstances for God has called us to live in peace. I have a good, good friend that told me the story of his first marriage. Um, he was not following the Lord to any significant degree when he first got married. And so he marries this woman because they enjoyed hanging out together. But then he repented of that behavior later and he started following Jesus. But he was asking the same question like, man, she wants nothing to do with me now that I'm a follower of Jesus. She's angry with me. There's nothing but tension in the home. So he goes to his pastor and he's like, man, what do I do? What, what in the world do I do? Because I believe divorce is wrong, but she hates me. He goes, okay, invite her into my office. Let's have a chat. I don't know why she said yes, but she said yes. So she's sitting in the pastor's office and he's like, tell me about yourself. You know, do you like this guy? She's like, well, yeah. She's like, and he was like, do you want to stay with him? Not really if he's going to do this whole Jesus thing. He's like, let me tell you about Jesus. So he just preached the gospel at her. She wanted nothing to do with it. She's like, no, this Jesus thing is weird. God's weird. Y'all are weird. So no, I don't want any part of it. He goes, okay, so do you want out of this marriage? She goes, actually, yes, I do. And so he turns to my friend and he goes, congratulations. This is one of the best days of your life. She's released you. 
Now, is that a mockery of marriage? No. It's a saving of the peace that God wants in all of our marriages. He didn't call you into a relationship to be a doormat. He didn't call you into a relationship to get abused. He said, come together that others might see the gospel. Should this not happen, seek help. Find a counselor, find a pastor, and discuss this together. And if one wants out, if they're not a believer, he says, release them. Let them go. But friends, that's not where he ends the text, and so I don't want to end there either. He ends with unbelievable power and spiritual hope. He says at the very, very end, he goes, ladies, please listen to me. He goes, to the women that are married to men that are not obeying scripture. So if you've got a husband, and he's a bonehead, and he's not obeying scripture, he's not loving you, he's not sacrificing, he's doing nothing but pleasing himself, he says, ladies, come here. Out of 1 Peter chapter 3 is where we get what you need to do. But here, before I get to that, what Paul says, he goes, ladies, you do not understand the unbelievable ability you have to win his heart. You don't understand the role that you could play in saving this man. What is the goal of all of our lives? To know God and make him known. You could do that with your spouse. It'll be the most amazing act of evangelism anyone's ever seen. Don't run from him because he's not doing what he said. Because I didn't run from you when you didn't do what I said. Look at your husband. And here's what Peter says. If you're a woman in here and your husband is just in utter rebellion. But you're like, no, I'm not going to leave. What do you do? First Peter chapter 3, he says, submit to him. Love him anyway out of reverence for the Lord. Don't do it because that's the nice Christian thing to do. Don't do it because he's obeying. Do it because he's not obeying. And he will see something in you. And, and friends, if you're sitting there, you're like, Tyler, there's no way you're right. There's no way. You don't have the ability to transform your husband's heart at all. God does. And he says, I will utterly assault that man's soul if you are obedient to love him, to submit to him. Because here's what he's going to see. She's kind to me, even when I'm a bully. She gives to me even when I give nothing to her. She follows these rules from an ancient book following a God who's invisible, but I'm seeing fruit in her life and I'm seeing none in mine. Sweetheart, what's different about you? And you respond, I don't just love you, I serve my king. And he has asked this of me. I'm not in this marriage to simply feel good. I'm in this marriage to love you. And gentlemen, he says something similar to you. If you're in a marriage and your wife is distant and you haven't been intimate in a long time, you're scared. You're like, I, I'm not mad at her, but I am mad. I'm frustrated. I don't know what to do. I'm, I'm almost scared of her. What do you do? He says, be considerate of her and show her respect Bring her to a place where you weird her out. Where she's like, who are you? Like, why are you kind? Why are you listening to me? Why are you asking me questions about my life and my day as if somehow I matter to you? I haven't mattered to you for years. And in that moment, gentlemen, you say, you're right. You have not. Because I have been a bully. I have been selfish. I've been rude. I've treated you as something to be used, not something to cherish. Please forgive me. Your marriage is not something to quit on. Now, for some of you, you're scared and you're angry because you're looking at other marriages and you're like, they're having so much fun. So could you. 
So could you if you put some work into it. You know, Tyler, it's not my fault. It's her fault or it's his fault. Maybe. But God didn't call you into a contract. He called you into a covenant. And yes, what it's going to mean for some of you is you're going to leave and you're not going to have a fun Sunday. You're not going to have a fun afternoon because you're going to sit your wife down. You're going to sit your husband down. You're going to say, we're a mess. And they're probably going to say, "Uh, yeah, yeah, we are. What do you want to do about it? I'm not sure, but I'm utterly convinced that God is real. So we're going to submit to him. We're going to give this a shot. We're going to go meet with a pastor. We're going to meet with a counselor. We're going to meet with a trusted friend to say, we're, we're messing this up. Help us. Why do any of the relational roles exist at all? Friends, marriage, singleness, messy marriages. Why? So that I would understand real intimacy, not with another human being, but with God. That he would draw me close, because here's what you got to admit. If you're with a spouse and it's messy, or you're single and you're scared, you're angry about it, you got to admit you've never prayed more in your whole life. God is calling you into a level of intimacy that maybe you've never been in before with him. And it hurts and it's scary. Don't run from it. Run into it. Because there, there is blessing. And there, there is glory for the Lord. Because that is our end goal.